perhaps you've heard the statistics, seen the survey studies that indicate that the Christian church is no different than the world. So-called born-again Christians are basically the same as the world in terms of divorce rate, sexual immorality and addictions, racial prejudice, charitable giving, even basic Christian beliefs. These people who give, uh, who, who apparently fail to be transformed by their Christian faith are designated in these studies with the term born again. Here's how the Barna Group, one of these groups that performs these studies, defines the phrase born again. They apply the term born again to people who have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today and believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. In other words, born again means what someone says about their values and beliefs. If somebody says, Jesus is important to me, I trusted him, and I'm going to go to heaven when I die, they are therefore labeled as born again. So the logic pattern of these surveys seems to be this. Identify someone as born again based on what he says. Observe that they are largely similar to non-Christians in terms of their lifestyles and choices. And therefore conclude, or at least strongly suggest, that being born again does not really change people's lives. Well, friends, the New Testament paints a radically different picture of rebirth and the fruit in the life of a truly born-again person. In fact, I think the New Testament would probably draw an almost opposite conclusion from this data. So, for example, if you were to first identify someone who claims to be born again and then observe that those people are largely similar to non-Christians in all of the ways we've already discussed I think the New Testament would basically conclude that many who claim to have been born again have actually never truly been born again. Here's what that suggests. There are thousands, perhaps millions of people in church auditoriums, sanctuaries, school cafeterias, throughout the nation every Sunday who say and perhaps honestly think that they are born-again Christians who are not, in fact, born-again Christians. We're going to explore today a passage in John's Gospel that speaks directly into this tragedy with good news and gospel hope. This passage is going to tell us of our deadly condition apart from Christ. It will describe to us the radical transformation that the Spirit of God brings into a person's life. And it will call us to the genuine confession that evidences this rebirth in our lives. So we're going to read today John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. I will begin in verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, as we set the scene, set the stage for this lengthy and interesting an important conversation, it'll be good to, to observe who the characters are in this scene. Obviously, Jesus is the main player, the main character, but a man enters the scene who, whom we have not yet met in John's gospel. His name is Nicodemus. We learn from this passage that he is a Pharisee. Now, first of all, we think of Pharisees as the villains, right? And indeed, they were the ones who were largely responsible for the plot to kill Jesus uh, later in his life uh, at the end of his ministry. So in that sense, yeah, they're villains. But in their day, these guys were respected, admired. They, they were thought of as the experts on God's word and probably the most successful people in living out the law of God. So the fact that Nicodemus is a Pharisee tells us right away that he was 
in the upper class in terms of the religious uh, Jewish culture. He was respected and admired and revered. It tells us that he is a ruler of the Jews, which means he's not just a Pharisee, he's also a member of the Sanhedrin, a group of local rulers, especially in religious matters. And so they oversaw uh, the temple and the synagogue and things like that. He is a rabbi. Jesus calls him that, a teacher of the law in verse 10. So we know that he is, is not only well acquainted with God's law, but actually is a teacher of it to others. So this guy has some influence and some clout in the, the uh, Jewish religious system. Apparently, Nicodemus is inclined toward belief in Jesus, or at least he's curious about him, since A, he calls him rabbi, B, he says he knows Jesus is from God, and C, he comes to Jesus by cover of night, probably to avoid unnecessary controversy among his peers or being seen uh, as, as in cahoots with Jesus in some way, and so he comes to visit Jesus at night. So we need to remember as we're entering this story and reading this conversation that Nicodemus is not just some random guy. He is a big dog within the Jewish religious system. And with that in mind, if you'll if you recall what John is doing in this portion of his gospel, he is intentionally setting Jesus over and against the major institutions and rituals of Jewish religion in order to demonstrate that he is their fulfillment. So at the beginning of chapter 2, at a wedding in Cana, Jesus foreshadowed the purification from sin that would be purchased by his own blood when he turned water from purification jars into wine. In Jerusalem during Passover, he entered the temple and cleansed it of its impurities and prophesied that his own death and resurrection would establish him as the replacement for the temple, the place, if you will, of God's presence with his people. So this is what John is doing over and over here. He is taking Jesus into scenes where he will engage with an important aspect of the Jewish religious system and he is going to demonstrate that Jesus himself is its fulfillment and its replacement. And so with that in mind, and knowing that Nicodemus is a revered teacher of the law within the Jewish religious system, it is clear that John is putting Jesus forward as the greater rabbi, the true teacher of God's word. And once again, ultimately the replacement of the entire Jewish religious system in favor of simple faith in Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin to look at the content of this conversation. We learned three things from what Jesus says to Nicodemus here. The first thing is we learn of the deadly condition that human beings are in, a deadly condition. We learn the seriousness of our situation by the radical remedy required. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, one cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You must be born again. That's the remedy. And because that is the remedy, we know that the condition is deadly serious. If I go to the doctor because of a, of a mysterious growth on my body and he says to me, you must undergo aggressive radiation and chemotherapy, 
I have learned that the growth on my body is cancerous and deadly severe and requires a radical response. In the same way, the fact that the required remedy for our situation is you must be born again tells us that our condition is dreadfully serious because it requires a complete renewal, rebirth from the inside out. So we know that our condition is deadly by the radical remedy that is required for it. We learn that our condition is deadly because Jesus tells us you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God can either refer to the realm where the authority of Jesus is recognized, that is, hearts that belong to him, or it can refer to the final state of existence for those who have trusted in him, a future glorified reality where God's people live with him in peace and joy forever. So when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it, it sometimes will refer to one or the other of those aspects. I think both of those things could be in view here because the truth is that people who get to experience the final state of glory and joy are the very same people who have yielded themselves in this life to the authority of Jesus Christ. However you slice it, this is bad news. Unless you are born again, you don't belong to God and you won't live with God in eternity. That's essentially what it means to say you can't see the kingdom of God. You don't belong to him and you can't live with him in eternity. This is bad news. We know that our condition is deadly because Jesus tells us down in verse 18 that we stand condemned. You see, God is utterly holy. 1 Timothy 6, 16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Light in the Bible often represents purity, perfection, righteousness. We don't like to think of God in these terms. We like to think of God as kind of on our level and as condescending to us and as being our friend uh, and our, our supporter and defender. And he certainly is those things in his kindness and in his mercy. But before he is those things, he is utterly holy and perfect and righteous and just. And he cannot abide sin in any way. So in contrast to his purity and his holiness... Here is the human condition summed up in a few passages of Scripture. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says of Christians, excuse me, of non-Christians, before we've come to Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in trespasses and sins, carrying out the fleshly desires and by nature children of wrath. Romans 3, uh, 11 and 18 tells us this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
At the end of this chapter, John the Baptist will say in verse 36 that whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Our condition, unless something is done to rescue us, is deadly serious. We are under wrath. We stand condemned. Why this wrath? Why this condemnation that awaits us? Jesus tells us in verse 18, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But we also know that our condition is deadly because Jesus tells us in verses 19 and 20 that we hate the light because our deeds are evil. Because of our wickedness, we run away from light. He tells us there in verse 19, the light has come into the world. What light is he talking about? Well, if you remember at the beginning of this gospel in John chapter 1, John told us this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Well, the light he's talking about is clearly the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world in his incarnation, bringing to a dark world his light. And instead of embracing his light and running to his light, we run away from it. We recoil. We hide away. We cower in the shadows. Just like Adam and Eve, that fateful day in the garden. Maybe the saddest verse in all the Bible is Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Friend, your instinct to hide your sin is a mark of deep spiritual brokenness. Your efforts to cover your tracks <laughs> are a sure sign of a heart that loves darkness and flees in fear from the pure and holy light of the presence of Jesus. This is the human condition. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what can be done? How can this dreadful reality change? Is there any hope for a condemned Sinner, yes, there is. Let's discover what it is before we ask the question, how can it happen? What is the hope for a condemned sinner? The hope of a condemned sinner is a radical transformation. A radical transformation. Because when Jesus says, you must be born again, what he means is you have to undergo a complete and total renewal and transformation from the inside out. Rebirth is a spiritual reality. He tells us in John 3, verses 5 and 6, unless one, one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Some people say that water is referring to physical birth. I don't think that's right. Uh, some people say that water is referring to baptism. So, he says, so he's like saying you have to be baptized and you have to be born of the Spirit. 
And I don't think either of those things is, is accurate. I think water and the spirit, because he doesn't say you have to be born of water and born of the spirit. So both of those terms uh, refer to that same verb of being born. So you have to be born how? Of water and the spirit. It's one phrase. And I think water and the spirit represents spiritual life, spiritual birth. And it's probably a reference to Old Testament passages like Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 25 through 27, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you. So there's the notion already of water there being cleansed with water and the spirit of God being placed within us. And so I think that water and the spirit is just talking about being cleansed and renewed by the spirit, by the spirit of God in our own spirit. So being born of water and the spirit is being cleansed from the inside out, being purified by the spirit of God. And I think that distinction is made even more clear by Jesus' explanation in verse 6, where he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Once again, however, just as with the temple leaders and Jesus' prophetic statement about the destruction of the temple in chapter 2, Nicodemus takes Jesus literally, and he can't understand. Wait a minute. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus does not yet have his eyes on the spiritual truth to which Jesus is pointing. And so he's taking Jesus in a literal way, at, at face value, and isn't quite following him. But the first thing that we see about this transformation is that this rebirth, what it means to be born again, is a spiritual life, a spiritual reality, and not a physical reality. We also learn that rebirth is the work of God, where he says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. In English, wind and spirit translate the very same Greek word. The Greek word is pneuma. And depending on the context in which it's used, it can either mean wind or breath, or it can mean spirit. And in this context, it's kind of a, a play on words between wind and spirit. You can't see the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't decide whether and when the wind will blow. So it is with the spirit. He does as he pleases. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. And just so, when someone is born again by the spirit of God, you can see the effects of the work of the spirit in a person's life. That's why Paul in Galatians 5 can refer to various marks of virtuous character as the, quote, fruit of the Spirit. Because when the Spirit of God is at work in a person's life, it evidences itself, he, rather, evidences himself with things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and the rest. So you, don't, you can't make the Spirit move. You can't make the spirit come. You can't force the spirit to give you rebirth. That's the spirit's doing. But when the spirit of God comes, you can be sure that it brings fruit, that it brings 
transformation, that his presence in your life yields change, this rebirth from the inside out. And in fact, we learn that rebirth is, is like a spiritual resurrection. Just as we read earlier, Paul in Ephesians 2 saying that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Then he says, but God being rich in mercy made us alive with him. So it is a rebirth. It is a resurrection. So to be born again means to be brought back to life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So being born again is about a radical transformation that takes place in our lives because the Holy Spirit of God has moved into your heart, has blown his wind, if you will, through your soul and given you new life and revived your dead spirit. Well, how can this happen? That's, if that's the answer to our deadly condition, is to be radically transformed by the Spirit of God, how does that come about? If our condition is so deadly serious, and the only remedy for the situation is a mysterious, sovereign work of God's Spirit in our dead souls, what can we do? Well, the last thing that we'll see from this conversation between John, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus is a genuine confession. We've learned of our deadly condition. We've learned of the radical transformation that is required to answer that deadly condition. And now we learn that what yields or at least evidences this rebirth and this radical transformation in our lives is a genuine confession about the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, Jesus says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I think that that's kind of an echo to uh, his phrase, be born again. And unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So then when he says, but if you believe in him, you have eternal life. I think those are parallel statements. Be born again equals believe in him. Enter the kingdom of heaven equals have eternal life. So being born again yields or results in belief in the Son of Man. You can know that you've been born again by the Spirit of God if you are trusting in Jesus as the Savior of your life and your hope for eternity. We learn uh, this genuine confession is that Jesus must be lifted up. He tells the story uh, of, of Moses, or he refers to the story of Moses in the desert with this bronze serpent. And he says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And it's kind of an, an obscure reference. He's talking about a story in Numbers chapter 21, where the people of Israel uh, are judged for their sin uh, by God sending poisonous snakes into the camp where they're, where they're living. And people are getting bitten by these snakes and dying from their poison. And so as a remedy uh, to the, the, the poison from these snake bites, God has Moses um, create a bronze snake and put it on a pole in the middle of the camp. And then he tells the people, if you, will, if you get bitten by one of these snakes, if you will just look to that serpent on the pole, you'll be saved. You'll be healed from the snake's poison and it will not kill you. 
And I think that is so interesting in a few ways. First of all, it's interesting that the symbol of salvation is the very picture of the curse. The snake that bit them and that was killing them is the very thing that they have to look to in order to find salvation. And that's going to become true of Jesus as well in that the sin and the death that plagues us is represented by the cross that Jesus is going to hang on. We look to his death and his curse in order to remedy our own death and our own curse because of sin. And it's interesting as well because this the remedy for the snake poison was an act of faith, a simple act of faith. It wasn't go to the doctor and get some uh, kind of uh, you know antibiotic or uh, some medicine to try to to get rid of this poison or to work to get rid of it somehow. It was a simple act of faith to turn and look at the snake that was lifted up on the pole. If you'll just look at the snake you'll be saved from the poison. Why? What in the world would save you from looking at a snake? It's faith. It's that they had to trust God and the remedy that he had put in place in order to be saved from that snake's poison. So when they were bitten by a snake, if they looked at the snake on the pole, what they were doing was saying, God, I believe you. God, I trust you to save me from this snake bite. And Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he's going to be lifted up on a cross where he is going to pay for our sins, the sins of the world. And if we, in simple faith, will look to him and see Jesus on the cross and in faith trust God for his provision will be saved. This is where we get one of the most famous uh, verses in all the Bible, John 3.16. And this is the context in which it comes, where he's speaking about being lifted up on the cross as the remedy uh, for our spiritual death and for salvation from our sins. He says, For God so loved the world. Pause. He so loved the world. That is the Greek word hutos, which means in this way. It's, it's a question of manner, not degree. We usually hear this like God loved the world so much that he gave his son, which is not untrue. But the language of this verse is saying that God loved the world in this way. In other words, he demonstrated his love by sending his only son. God didn't just feel warm fuzzies for us. He took action to remedy our deadly situation. And he sent his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This rebirth comes about through the proclamation of the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Word of Christ, they're meaning the message about the Messiah, the story of Jesus crucified for sinners and raised to life again. Faith in this message is the only thing 
that can save the sinner. The only way for one who stands condemned already to not perish but have eternal life is through simple faith in Jesus Christ crucified. That's the remedy. That's how you get born again. That's how you know that the Spirit of God is at work in you and bringing about a radical transformation and renewal and resurrection in your life. You are looking to Jesus in faith. And you're saying to God, I believe you. I trust you. I receive the provision that you made with Jesus on the cross to take my sins away and to give me new life. And so we proclaim the gospel message. We announce the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. And we plead with men, women, boys, and girls to believe in the Son of Man and so be reconciled to God. The year was 2013. The place was Sunderland City, England. The setting, the annual Marathon of the North, where 5,000 runners compete in either a half marathon or a full marathon race. However, in this particular race, only one runner would actually complete a full marathon at 26.2 miles. You see, the organizers of the event were to place marshals at certain points throughout the course, indicating to runners which direction to take to ensure that they stayed on the correct path. However, Due to a bungling of the marshaled locations, only one runner, a man named Jake Harrison, actually completed the correct 26.2-mile course, and thus he obviously won the race. But that meant that 4,999 runners in the race who believed that they were following the proper course and were all on the pathway toward completing the marathon were in fact misguided and ended their race 264 meters or about 866 feet short of a full marathon. Friends, don't be deceived. Don't be misguided into assuming that you're on the right path toward finishing the race only to find out too late that you ran the wrong course. Place your faith in Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins and the securing of a relationship with God and be confident that you have truly been born again by the Spirit of God. Recognize your condition as dead in your trespasses and sins. Confess your sin to God and look to Jesus who is lifted up on a cross for you that you may be saved and have eternal life.